Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ivory Road podcast here, speaking about some weekly news on a Monday night as usual. I'm joined, as always, by Paco. Paco, how are you doing? Hey, uh, everything good, everything good. Uh, I'm back in Italy for some days, so it's good to be at home. Lucky uh, you. But yeah, everything good. Very good. We're also joined by Enric, an Ivory Road regular. Enric, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, I'm fine. Um, glad to be here with you. Yeah, special Monday night edition. Okay, so let's get right into it. Enric, you're here to talk to us about what's the main story of the week in Spain anyway. We had elections yesterday in Catalonia. Do you want to tell us a bit about what happened, what the outcome was, and what we should expect? Um, yeah, so um, I mean, one of the main reasons to talk about Catalonia and their elections is that, is that they're not just any other regional election. They do have a special meaning, um, I'd say, not just for Spanish politics, but European politics. So I think that's why it's worth um, you know, spending some time on it. Um, I mean, the first thing, obviously, to comment is that um, the pandemic did have a big effect on the turnout. And we saw a drop of uh, over 20 percentage points compared to 2017 election. Um, it was only just over 50% of the voters that actually went to vote. Um, so that's already something that um, could have altered the results compared to other elections. We don't know the extent of that yet, but uh, that's something different. And then in terms of the results themselves, I think it was a great night for uh, PSOE, so the Spanish Social Democrats. Um, their candidate was the former health minister who actually dealt with the whole pandemic and he actually won the elections both in votes and seats. Um, so that was a great, great result for them. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it's very, very unlikely that he'll reach the presidency because there is a majority of pro-independence parties. Um, both again in seats, which had been uh, the regular result for the last two, three elections, but also this time for the first time in popular vote, they reached more than 50%. And that was something that had never happened before. Um, we don't, we're, we're not sure whether, whether the, the results of the, of the low turnout had this impact, uh, but it's looking like uh, pro-independence voters were more loyal and were more mobilized to actually go and vote. Um, the other main thing was that the, the right-wing party uh, that had dominated the, the pro-independence movement now came second within the pro-independence bloc. And so it's looking now, now like uh, the left-wing Esquerra Republicana will get to govern. Um, we're not sure whether the, the, with a coalition with the right-wing party, um, which had been the previous government, or they'll be trying to explore a different uh, government alternative. Um, and then the other maybe biggest and sad news is that the far right actually entered the parliament and not just entered, but they came fourth out of eight parties, which actually gained seats in parliament. Um, and they had 11 seats, which is a fantastic result for them. Um, and not just that, but they became the largest pro-union um, right-wing party out of the three that were running um, and they beat traditional you know Partido Popular which is the center-right Spanish uh, traditional party and they they almost uh, doubled them in votes so so that was that was also a big surprise um, and then kind of in terms of uh, government coalition forming it is looking very likely that we're going to have another coalition government between all the independence parties 
Um, but there is a big, big majority on the left side. So um, if that doesn't result, uh, which I, I think it's unlikely as of now, um, you could have alternative alternative coalition with uh, different transverse um, left wing parties, um, or maybe try uh, a, a minority government with external support. We'll see how how that works out. Can I build on this um, in the sense that uh, you know from a side it's really interesting. For example, of course, uh, for a I would say a non-Spanish person who looks at this election, uh, this fact, like, so the fact that uh, basically right and left wing are together on the front of independence and uh, sort of the independence question is more important than traditional positions on, you know, politics uh, and economics and all the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, which brings me to a, a question, uh, you know, I'm from Venice, so uh, Northern Italy, and there is also yeah, a really strong independent movement, which partially inspires to Catalonia and wants the independence from uh, Italy, uh, or at least uh, a strong autonomy. So my question is, uh, here in Italy, this is often considered as a, you know, right-wing movement, which wants the independence on the basis of uh, the Venice region is really, Veneto, is really rich. And uh, they always complained about paying taxes for the South. This, uh, Southern Italy is more underdeveloped, or it was at least, now it's developing hopefully. Uh, but, and there was, so the, the sensation is that it's a rich region with, which wants for sort of egoistical reasons to be even richer, uh, the independence, but without considering that actually they are rich because they are part of a system, which is Italy, in this case, and then the European Union as well. So I was wondering uh, from outside, uh, I always wonder, like, is Catalonia a similar question? Of course, there, there is more, there seems to be more of a national identity, actually, of a Catalonia, uh, Catalan identity. But to what extent, in your opinion, is an economic question? And to what extent is a cultural and legit question of self-determination? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's uh, an interesting question. I guess there's no right or wrong answer. But um, if, if you look at the first part, so, so when you were saying it's interesting how the you know, left and right wing dynamics don't work anymore, I think that's a change that started with the whole independence process. So up until 2012, I'd say, uh, you had coalitions that looked more on the right-left axes. Um, so you had traditional kind of Catalan and Spanish right-wing parties agree agreeing on their main measures. And even you, and we also had two terms. So from 2003 to 2010, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we had uh, left-wing coalitions with three parties taking part of them. Um, so that was kind of the traditional way in which governments were formed. But since 2012 and the whole independence process, then um, that's completely that completely shattered. And, and now we're looking at pro-independence or pro-union. So, so that's changed the whole dynamics. And then kind of that relates also to the second part of the question, I'd say. Uh, there's some traditional, um, I think in Catalonia, the traditional independence movement is more linked to the left. So it's more to do with uh, there is an identity component, clearly, very clearly, uh, but also um, there is a feeling that some of the social injustice problems will be better solved if they go um, 
you know, by themselves. It looks more, I'd say, like the Scottish independence movement. So there is a strong argument for social justice. Um, however, that's always been a minority, whereas kind of from 2012, the big change has been in the right wing. Um, so traditional right wing Catalan parties were very pro-business and in such uh, context, they were always agreeing with the Spanish parties to find the best solutions for businesses. No? So always prioritizing economic policy and liberal policies above everything. But since 2012, um, they saw that discourse wasn't working anymore. And also the traditional Catalan right-wing party had many, many corruption cases. So kind of they, they broke their traditional um, party toy and they moved to this new one that they created after um, the whole the whole uh, the whole um, independence movement started and uh, and now they're like the more radical version of independence um, but they're moving more on that um, they, I, I can see how people can refer to them as being those selfish people that you were talking about so less that there's less of that element of solidarity with the other regions of Spain or even with the other regions of, of the European Union because um, I'm not sure what how how um, how how aware on social justice a government like this would be on a European scene um, if they were an independent country and and it was led by by these people on the right. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's really complicated. <laughs> why why 2012? Like is like because so, of the economic crisis or? It's a bit of everything, but um, when. Uh, Prior to 2012, the Catalans were negotiating a new, um, what we call in Spain, Statute of Autonomy. So it's the rules by which uh, the autonomous regions in Spain uh, get granted certain powers of self-ruling. Um, so they were drafting a new, um, a new document of such uh, new law, and uh, that reached a certain level of consensus. It was even approved by a popular referendum. However, the Spanish Constitutional Court outruled many of the important articles um, that gave them extra power. So that's when people said, um, and um, that, that's when people basically said, okay, there's no room for us to expand our autonomy within this Spanish state. So they said, okay, the only way out is either completely breaking or staying with the status quo. So um, in 2012, I think that's when the when the sentence came out, when the when the constitutional court ruling came out. And so um, that's been a change for, for Catalan politics ever since. Okay. okay. Fascinating. It's, it's always a fascinating topic talking about um, talking <laughs> about Catalonia. I read a I read a, a survey recently or a poll recently that puts um, at the moment, the majority actually of Catalan, well, who took part in this poll, want to remain part of Spain. Yeah. Always very close. It's about 47% to 44% with the others undecided. So I think, as always, we'll be watching the space over the next couple of years. It's always a great. Yeah, in this case, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's too close to call. And that's the main argument for actually pro-referendum people to say, actually, let people vote and let's decide this for one and, and ever, for once and forever. So... Um, so yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in, in the near future. <laughs> what about like now that uh, the PSOE got a really strong result? Could yeah. that be used perhaps to, you know, because before there was, I think with Rajoy, you know, a sort of total rejection towards, as you were saying, independentist or autonomist uh, request. But perhaps now with Pedro Sanchez, there could there be a, an attitude more 
flexible from Spain and so perhaps reach a sort of compromise? Which... I mean, PSOE and, 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 the, and the Social Democrats are more prone to dialogue than what the right wing has always represented. But I'm not sure that's good enough for the demands of the pro-independence parties. It was good enough in 2012, in 20, maybe 14, 15, but it's been many years since that happened. So um, I don't think they'll take anything that doesn't imply having a referendum as such. Um, it, it's also true that um, the, the right-wing independent movements are more radical in this sense, so they'll only take this, whereas the left-wing Esquerra Republicana, the ones that actually will uh, reach presidency next time, um, are more also more in favor of dialogue solutions instead of just a total fracture with the state. Um, but as I say, the pressures from the streets are very, very strong, so I'm, I'm not sure they would take any solution that doesn't uh, that doesn't mean having a referendum. Okay, it's going to be going to be interesting to see what kind of government gets formed gets formed up there, and that brings us nicely into our next topic, where Draghi has formed his his selection of ministers in Italy, Paco. Yeah, should yeah. We, should we talk about that because the man <laughs> has made a big big mistake? Yeah, but I mean, we commented last week that uh, uh, you know this Draghi government initially was presented that almost left-wing uh, but of course actually was a government of national solidarity and actually uh, brings us brings back bring back some really uh, controversial let's say uh, figure of the italian politics um, of course berlusconi is forza italia is back uh, silvio will never die <laughs> uh, and with some really bad ministers uh, there is like brunetta who is a really famous minister uh, really controversial in past years for comments that also like racist uh, slash really right-wing positions uh, even worse i would say is gelmini uh, gelmini is another minister uh, in forza italia from forza italia who was like uh, became uh, famous uh, in italy famous uh, i would say not famous but like uh, infamous infamous yeah. <laughs> exactly because she basically uh in the during the uh, 2000s i think i don't remember the exact year but she promoted this reform of the italian instruction uh, education system which was terrible basically it was a giant cut of resources and uh, resulted uh, you know italy is like one of the last countries in europe for number of uh, graduates from universities and she basically gave a really big cut to um, the education, basically, in uh, to the education system. And it's still, Italy is still suffering from this. Now there were some reforms in the other sense, but it's still, I would say, we need more investment, investment uh, in instruction. Uh, and then, of course, there are some far-right uh, minister from Lega North. So like also that like is uh, really worrying. The other, even worse bit, from a certain point of view, uh, I'm not sure if it's worth, but worse, but like both are bad, is like of the 16 or 15, 16, I think, uh, minister who were elected, uh, only uh, eight were women, a, little, no, a bit less, sorry, uh, probably was 25, but it doesn't matter. But the point here is really not about um, only how many were women, is about most of the women were in ministries 
Uh, how do you define them? Like, it's like uh, without wallet, we say uh, it's a weird. No, like no, no portfolio. No portfolio, exactly. Uh, so basically, a little bit secondary position, not like the uh, main position. But even worse, like uh, apart from two, but two which have a really technical role, so they are not, they don't have a political position. All the rest, all the uh, portfolio ministers were occupied by men. And even worse, the Democratic Party, which is like, you know, uh, the center left party, which in the past 20 years, let's say, spoke about gender equality all the time, of the, the ministries they got, no one was given to uh, a woman. And indeed, it caused a really big protest within the Democratic Party uh, from the women of the Democratic Party who complained, of course, of, you know, we are talking about gender equality, but yeah, we talk about gender equality till it's time to give the ministries, then it's yeah. like, you know, the usual men, white men uh, occupying the places. So yeah, no, not the best start. <laughs> is that, a, is the, are these signals of Draghi as a leader, do you think? Or are these, uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you justify the lack of women from any of the important ministries? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not sure how much, you know, in these cases when the president formed the government, uh, especially in a government like this, which is basically a government which has all the parties in it, uh, I think the parties are uh, given the name. So the prime minister usually it's a sort of contractation like where the, the parties say we want this, this, this and this. And the prime minister says, OK, among these names, I choose this or this one. I don't know, but Draghi for sure, you know, it's like, uh, he's not really a young man. Uh, he's a white man who like, for sure, as much as it is like, you know, perhaps not, as we said, the most neoliberal economist, he has opposition of openness, but he's still like, an, you know, an old white man who, uh, you know, was involved in the traditional European Union, like the, in the administration of the European Union and partially the, the European Union, how it is now, is uh, his creation as well. So for sure, I mean, I wouldn't expect Draghi. Uh, I, I'm not sure what was the weight he had um, in this particular choice, but I'm not sure uh, I would expect him to uh, push for gender equality, let's say, like is a traditional uh, economist, a traditional uh, politician. So in a way, center, it will, it will give continuity at the, at the European level. Now, this connects to the more general question, I would say for Italy, yeah, definitely there is a problem of gender equality in politics, uh, not only on the right, also on the left. Uh, this brings me back a little bit an argument which is controversial, which is Silvio Berlusconi, you know, but when he had like all these women into politics, he, he actually put a lot of women in positions. Uh, Mara Carpagna, who is currently leader uh, of Forza Italia, was among them and these were all discutable prof profiles like people complained a lot about them coming from you know the world of uh, show business basically from they were often uh, the world of silvio the, the world of silvio yeah but you see there there is a problem where you are discussing you're criticizing people for the curriculum and that's fine but it's really subtle the limit where you know the left is criticizing women just because they are perhaps you know of good appearance and perhaps coming from a different background uh, from that one that you're experiencing, the, 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 the line from that to becoming sexist is really 
is really it's really fine. No? Yeah, yeah. And on the other side, in the left wing, there are really few women in uh, even as at the national level who uh, have a position of leadership. So I would say there it is a problem that the Italian left has definitely a sort of chauvinism. Uh, to be fair, un unconscious. Um, to be fair, I mean, Italian politics never stops surprising us because um, you always, you've had all sorts of experiences, anything ranging from like a technocratic government um, to, you know, um, five-star movement changing from a far-right position to a social democrat coalition. Like, I mean, I, I from an outside perspective, like Italy is always a surprise, but I'm more interested to know, like, what do actually people think on, on these issues? Because, um, now you've got this sort of, and you know, let me describe it maybe as a as a Frankenstein coalition um, mm -hmm. with no programmatic coherence and no, um, I mean, no cohesion is possible within that government because every ministry is going to work independently. I'm guessing, and there's not going to be a common agenda on anything. I, I can't imagine. Um, so, what do people think about these experiences? Like, is it more? Is it perceived more as a problem with I don't know the electoral system? or the actual in, inability of, of, um, of the politicians themselves and leaders themselves to reach um, stable majorities? Like what, what's, what's the popular perception on this? Yeah, uh, at the moment, actually, you know, as often happens with the new government, the government has kind of sort of a big uh, approval rate uh, in the population. Uh, and of course, the, uh, Draghi plays a role in this, like, because, you know, Draghi, we are not talking in any case, with the critics, you can move to him. Uh, we are not talking about a person like we are talking a person about a person who is like at the European level, really both charismatic and recognized. So, like, it's uh, uh, basically it's a choice that was made in a moment where there was a pandemic, where the previous government was, in my opinion, wrongly uh, put in crisis by uh, Matteo Renzi, who, like, I think, was the most negative. Uh, actor in the in this phase of the Italian politics. So in, in this moment, the perception is this government is what we need. Uh, of course, it's like, as we said, it's a Frankenstein coalition, like it's a sort of technical government. The reason why we have this government is based on Draghi's uh, charisma from one side and from the other by the impossibility to go to elections because you have the pandemic and you have a situation of emergency and there is, you know, the recovery fund. Uh, you need to administrate the recovery fund. So you need a government to uh, do that. More in general, definitely there is a problem, a long-standing problem in the Italian politics where like, it's difficult to find cohesion, it's difficult to find, uh, I would say among, among the, the various parties, like in the past 20 years, we have really little, you know, probably since Berlusconi perhaps was the last stable government, which lasted for a while, which had a clear political guidance you know we are i think this is connected with the economic crisis that the country in any case has suffered since 2008 uh, a continuous crisis uh, so yeah I, I would say the answer is a little bit a little bit of course people are really really uh, tired uh, there is still hope for this government let's hope despite all the what we can say let's hope that they do well because uh, uh, we need uh, Italy to um, go out from this period of crisis like it was a problem for Italy but for the entire European Union as you said like more, the five-star movement right, even more Salvini are a serious threat for the entire European Union not only for Italy yeah 
I, mean, I think I think in general at the moment, given the pandemic and the, the political situation in a lot of countries, there are going to be some risky governments coming into power this year, maybe also next year. It's it's a little bit scary to wonder what could if the wrong people get in without there being a vote. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops. I'll certainly be looking at Italy, as Enric said. It's it's the closest thing we get to the entertainment of American politics over here, I guess. You know, in this moment, probably yeah. there is this sentence of a famous uh, movie and uh, book, Gatto Pardo, mm -hmm. when they say like you know uh, everything needs to change. So, so that nothing. everything remains the same. And that yeah. is a little bit Italy in the past 20 years, like a lot of changes, but in the end, like <laughs> it's a strange country. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely interesting. <laughs> Very well put. Okay. Um, it wouldn't be a Monday show without us talking about Hungary. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> again, Paco, you want to tell us what happened in Hungary over the last seven days? Uh, yeah, so few things uh, really bad. And uh, again, uh, the, this escalation towards authoritarianism, uh, unfortunately, doesn't seem uh, to stop. One is that uh, uh, the last independent radio, uh, which is called Club Radio, basically, um, was uh, basically not, not closed, but was forced to go online because like the funding was not renovated basically by uh, a consortium which was connected with the government. So under the control uh, of Orban, basically, the, the political influence at least. Uh, and this was the last independent radio basically in Hungary. So finding sort of independent information is becoming more and more uh, difficult. And this is really worrying also in connection to Poland is in a similar situation now with all the abortion on. We, we keep on, these two countries keep on being really worrying. The other thing is that uh, a new law was passed uh, for uh, trade unions, which limits the power, strongly the power of trade unions. This follows a previous law in 2018, which was defined as slavery at the European level, where like, uh, the rights of the workers were really reduced and actually uh, companies could wait like to pay the workers for up to four years, uh, something really crazy uh, in certain conditions. Uh, now, trade the trade union system is the basis of, you know, the democratic system for how it developed after, after uh, World War II. So I would say like this is really worrying and of course goes against everything that is the, the European Union and bring up some, the, the question of how the European Union can find a solution to this problem that doesn't seem to be able to limit this uh, escalation towards you know, uh, authoritarianism. We must be getting close in the EU to the point of introducing some sort of extraordinary mechanism to deal with what's happening in Hungary, because the, the place is not democratic at all anymore. It's, it's essentially knocked down every pillar that has anything to do with democracy in the country. I mean, are, do, do we think, are the EU just going to stand by and keep getting vetoed by Hungary and Poland without doing anything? Enric, what do you think about what's happening in Hungary these days? I mean, I do think that the European Union should enforce certain measures. I mean, in the same way that during the whole um, austerity period and after the, the financial crisis, they enforced um, so many economic measures on Greece and the other Mediterranean countries. I, mean, I think when we're talking about basic fundamental rights, and that's exactly what we're talking here, um, the European Union should enforce um, their measures. 
Um, and I do believe that the current treaties um, have enough mechanisms for that to happen. So, you know, you've got the the Greens and the left-wing parties in, in European Parliament claiming the Commission to actually do something about it. Um, and, uh, and I do think that, that, that should, that's something that, that, needs to, that needs to come from European institutions when there is such an uh, a national emergency in this case. And then from an internal point of view, I, I've seen conversations. Um, I'm not sure whether it was I think it was Poland, but it could have been Hungary too, um, of uh, forming, you know, big tent coalitions uh, of different parties, which would traditionally confront in, in normal elections, but just specific platforms um, set up to get rid of these leaders, basically, because this is a na national emergency. And I would see justified, you know, big, uh, broad coalitions that had that sole purpose in order to bring kind of democratic normality back into place, because uh, I do believe this is like a matter of, uh, of national emergency or European emergency, rather. Yeah, I mean, pandemic aside, it's the biggest issue we're, we're facing in Europe. And it's not new. It's been like this for well over 12 months at this point. You know, how Orban and Fidesz are still part of the, the European People's Party in the in the parliament, I don't I don't even know. You know, there's yeah. no people are afraid of them, it seems. And I don't know. Their influence is running too deep, but something definitely has to be done as soon as possible, as you say. Yeah, and it's crazy. See if I can repeat like on what Enric was saying, like the fact that you know, with austerity, there was a tremendous yeah pressure when there was austerity towards certain countries, Mediterranean countries, Ireland as well for a period, you know, for, for an economic question. While here we are talking about, you know, democracy, which is the, the, like the pillar, the central pillar, uh, the, the stone, the, I would say the cornerstone. cornerstone no, of the European Union. And it's almost the pressure is less than with the uh, uh, economic measures. Like, so it's like, I don't know, but to me, the, the old question, like if the European Union is not capable to give a proper answer to this question, because it's at risk the entire European Union, because what, what are we? Are we an economic union? Are we just, you know, here to make some economic choices or are we something more, something which talks about democracy and about a vision which goes, you know, uh, farther, which doesn't limit only to economic choices, but like to uh, fundamental yeah. values. Like what are they what what's gonna have to happen for them to step in in Hungary, you know? Because if it keeps going the way it's going in 12 months' time, I don't know. He could be rounding up people he doesn't like, could be rounding up groups they don't like. You know, there are bad guys leading countries out there, and he's he's definitely one of them. I think mm -hmm. I think it's time to, you know, recognize that this is a real and serious threat to, to people's lives in that country, you know, and their livelihoods as well, of course. I mean, let's see how things evolve. I mean, we've, we're under Portuguese presidency, if I'm not mistaken, for the European, uh, not the European Council, sorry, the, the, e, the Council of the EU. Um, so, um, so they should have the power at least to set the agenda on certain important items. And this could be on the agenda. I mean, uh, this should be debated and this should be something that 
um, countries don't look away from. Um, they do need to position themselves. And as Paco was saying, I mean, the, the EU was was created as a as an instrument to maintain peace, but then it evolved into an economic union, and then it evolved into something that created the concept of European citizenship. And so um, we need to be talking about that. We need to be talking about how social rights and fundamental rights, political rights, civil rights, are all guaranteed across the union and that's something we're not seeing these days yeah absolutely right speaking of the lack of rights um i think it, we'll just mention very briefly what's still happening in myanmar because i read in the news this afternoon that so hundreds of thousands of people are still protesting their leader is still being locked up the military coup is in full full flight they've taken over and the new threats that are coming out are 20 years of imprisonment for people who are protesting. Now, let's be clear. So far from everything I've seen, this, these are peaceful protests, okay? Imagine being threatened with 20 years of prison for peaceful protests, okay? It's an absolute disgrace how the international community are standing by and watching what's happening. Now, again, we referenced this last week. Myanmar is a, it's a specific, case it's a very very delicate government it always has been it was a de facto government even before the the coup but i just wanted to mention the fact that it's disgraceful what's being threatened with with peaceful protesters over there um other news from last week paco climate change good news or bad news let's have a guess <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, bad news uh, as usual. I would say now. Let's hope that uh, soon we will be able to give better news. Uh, but yeah, well, there, there was you know, became really famous uh, across the globe the images of the um, glacier in the Himalayan region, uh, which melted, causing uh, a lot of deaths. Um, do you remember? Like, was like I don't remember the figures now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the scientists are saying that is that is actually only the beginning that we need to expect more of this in the next years this is just the, the the start of problems in that region but of course like we're talking of such a big glacier that will change at the global level probably will an impact at the global level and in connection to this always uh, good news from the european union um, france was uh, fined because they didn't respect some parameters of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement are the agreement on climate, uh, which, I mean, as Arbury Road, we had a discussion, in our opinion, are not sufficient. We should go even farther. But actually, mm -hmm. France is not respecting even those. Uh, the, the good, partially good news is that they were uh, fined. <laughs> they were symbolically fined, though, of one euro. <laughs> to pay at the uh, at some association some ngos like uh, greenpeace and other ngos concerned with the climate uh, now uh, i understand it's also a moment of pandemic so perhaps a bigger fine is not the, the the thing you can think about but like one euro i mean uh, this thing is serious guys like we are is our future at stake uh, one euro is not <laughs> what you would expect from an authority enforcing uh, climate dispositions it's absolute nonsense um the fine the whole the whole thing i understand what you're saying it's not the time to be to be handing out big big sums in terms of fines mm. but fining the french government one euro is it's just insulting really to be honest 
Anyway, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, thanks a million for joining me, Paco. A pleasure as always. Enric, thanks for, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So that wraps things up. We'll be back later in the week on Friday, where we'll be talking about abortion in Poland and the general restriction on, on women's rights in, in Poland. Okay. Thanks, guys. Take care. As always, subscribe to our mailing list and uh, Facebook channel, all the social channel. We have also Telegram now. So uh, just join us and uh, stay updated. Good night.